we take up our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, as we come to the close now of this mission manifesto, as it were, for for Christ speaking to his disciples, and that reminder even tonight, we were talking his counsel beforehand, and we keep seeing this phrase, his mission for sheep and for grain, and, and we keep hearing it, and certainly again, after coming through the harvest, we recognize that, that word of the Lord back even in chapter 9, verse 35, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so here is his concern for those who need to be gathered, that even in the life of the church, there is that call back to faithfulness, even as that call will go out to gather the lost sheep of Israel, to go out into the world and gather those sheep. But also then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so he has called disciples to that task. He sent them out to a great calling. He recognizes the challenge of it. Persecution is going to come. A confidence that can come saying, have no fear. He's going to go with them. That word will go forth and accomplish that for which he sends them. He cares for his people. Nothing is going to happen to them outside of that which is ordained. And they are of great value to him. But now then we come to this last section which speaks then of that choice. So already bringing us way back to the end of chapter 9 saying after all of this talk, there still comes that point of decision. There still now is this road that you are called to, this path that I have made for you. Will you be faithful to take it up? Because as difficult as all of the rest of it is, this too shares its own difficulty as we'll read. And so let's hear these words together. Matthew 10, we'll begin our reading in verse 34, and we'll take for our text verses 34 through 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, you bring an incredibly difficult word before us. Father, it is built from the moment that you have called 
in hurting, your heart going out to those sheep without a shepherd, of looking out at fields white for harvest, calling forth laborers to go out into that work. Father, it is built in each preceding or, or each following passage, Father, to make that call, that challenge, that confidence, all the greater, all the more awesome, but certainly all the more awful as well. And Father, that culminates now into the choices that you call us to as your people. As an apostolic people, Father, called to go out to that shepherding work, called out to that harvesting work. And so, Lord, would you work in our hearts that which is pleasing to you tonight. That you would remove every idol, that you would cast out every foe, that you would wash us and make us whiter than snow. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirit be pleasing to you, for I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Children of God called to be saints, life is full of choices. That every day, if you even look back at, say, an hour of your life, the, the sheer number, the overwhelming number of choices that you are called to make is mind-blowing. From the smallest of things to the greatest of things, we are continually, each and every moment, it would seem, needing to make a decision. Which way will we go? What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we do? Will we go to the left or the right? Will we stay behind that car or will we pass them? And so within the spectrum of all of those decisions, as I've mentioned, there are some of them that seem very insignificant. That even in the consideration of them, we've forgotten any number of decisions we've made even walking into the sanctuary this evening. They're of at least in some ways a little import. Things that we don't stop to think about. There are other decisions that we make in life that are so much more important. That sometimes if you've picked up the game of life and you have to figure out now, okay, where am I going to move this car? Am I going to get a job or, or start college? And am I going to get married? And am I going to have children? And, and what are we going to do and be? And already very young, those large decisions that have grand sweeping consequences begin. And there are a number of times as you get older where you look back at those seminal moments where in choosing the road less taken, something very different for you has come from it. We're all called to a number of choices. And yet in this passage, what we are always brought to from the moment Jesus says, this is my mission, in my longing for these sheep and the harvest that needs to come in, there is always a choice either for him or against him. That you will be one of my people or you won't. You will give me all of who you are or I don't have any of you. Those choices are difficult. And so on the one hand, as we hear it, we say, well, is it really that difficult? I mean, here is the Savior speaking of the way that he would have us go. And yet, if we consider our lives and the choices we make, we're we're not always making that choice. And so we're brought again to the need to make the next right choice. Even though, as we've read tonight, choosing that way is beyond difficult. That nothing here is 
is just generalities. Nothing in this text is things that, that perhaps we couldn't imagine, and maybe some of the problem we have is that we can't imagine it. Because we're part of families who have always loved Jesus. And I can look back generation after generation to grandparents and great-grands and great-great-grands, and I see covenant faithfulness. And we see families that love each other and want to be together and, and believe the same things and give themselves to the same things. But if we really look, is that really the truth? That if we look up and down our family trees, we see fracture, we see difficulty, we see infighting, we see brokenness. So-and-so doesn't visit so-and-so anymore. They stay away. We don't see them. And the whys of those decisions sometimes, outside of personality conflicts that we should get over already, more often than not, resolve around the word. Here's where we stand and we can do no other. And those who reject those decisions, those who despise those decisions. And so in some ways, it could seem as though this choice, on the one hand, is a very easy one. It's a simple one. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. We sing it. But do we believe it? Because to follow him is not to stop in the middle of the road or to stop in the field and look back at what you've already plowed. No one is worthy of the Lord who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. The decisions that we make are difficult when they involve what we give ourselves to or the relationships that we surround ourselves with or the life that we once knew. And yet we owe our lives to one who chose us. Who chose to give all that he had, to give up everything that was his for the sake of his choice for us. That the road, the decisions that Christ made were not easy. Yes, on the one hand, because he is God and the Son of God, this is the the covenant of a redemption he enters into. I long to do your will, Father. And yet in taking up that flesh, which would have rebelled in every way against that, there becomes the difficulty. No sin in him, but sin all around, all the time, entering the filth of what this is in order to save us. The road was not easy. And the road then that we are called to follow throughout all the scriptures, but especially here in Matthew 9 and 10, is one of total commitment, deep sacrifice, unflinching loyalty to him and to his mission, no matter what, no matter what may come, no matter who may rise against us, no matter who may leave us. No matter the difficulties that may ensue, he says, follow me. Follow me. It is a choice which we know where it ends, as we talked about this morning. We know where this ends. We know where we're going. We know the joy of having a Savior who is guaranteed a place for us. We know where we're going But in the next moment, 
and the next minutes, and the next 10 minutes, and the next day, and weeks, and months, and years, however the long the Lord may tarry, or until he brings us home, there is a decision that is called for. A choice that resolves in the blessed presence of the Almighty. A choice that we are always called to make. And it's that choice that has been given throughout the scriptures. It is that choice at the beginning that Adam and Eve fall into sin over. It's the choice that's given to the patriarchs. Abraham, do you love me more than your son? Israel, do you love me more than the idols of this world and the things that you used to have in Egypt, which was only a place of sin and death? Do you love me more than this land? Do you love me more than these people? Do you love me more than these? And it's why Joshua, at the end of his life, needs to say what? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. And even if his house wouldn't have gone that way, Joshua is stating clearly, we will serve the Lord. I will serve the Lord. And so as we come to the end of all of this talk, really, here's Jesus' commissioning of the disciples early on before we get to that which will come before his ascension. Looking at the disciples saying, have we made that choice? Have we made it fully? Have we decided to follow Jesus and to follow his mission wholly and only? And this text then becomes the test of it. To look at our heart's conviction. To look at the testimony of our life. Because Jesus calls us, make that choice. He's calling these disciples, follow me. But how they will do it matters. How we make and how we live out that decision matters. For the calling for the disciple is known in the choice of a life found in the love of Christ and given to his mission for sheep and grain. That will be the thing that defines whether we've said that, made that, believed that or not. And so that choice then as we examine it is one of division in verses 34 to 36. It's one that questions our adoration in verses 37 and 39. And then it calls us then to a fuller reception in verses 40 to 42. Because of course, a choice, if you think about it, is a division. We make a choice for a certain team. We make a choice of a certain product. We make a choice of a certain beverage. Even back in the day, the advertising, how witty for Pepsi, the choice of a new generation, right? Well, that means you're not going to have the other. These are the choices we make. And it's always our struggle, men, when there's always, of course, it's our wives who have that indecision of, well, where do you want to go? I don't care. Yeah, you do. Just make the choice. We're fine either way. You just have to make a call. And that isn't just our wives. That's all of us. We love indecision because we take a certain sort of safety in it. We're not going to offend anybody. No one's going to be mad at us. We don't have to lead then or have someone question us or struggle against us or despise us, in fact. And so certainly where we go to dinner, I mean, we're just, yes, we get to go out. Like that, that should be what that is. That's a minor one. 
But when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to loving the Savior, you can't make a choice to have Him and have everything else. You can't make a choice to love Christ and to love the world. You love and follow Christ or you don't. And we would love to have this middle position where we're not offensive to people in the church because we're just spiritual enough and we say the right things and we do the right things, but, but we're also not rejected by the world because we have a lot of friends there and, and we have dealings and we want that. It, it doesn't work. That's no witness at all other than a brokenness and a misunderstanding of what Christ is calling you to. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. We're devoted to Christ or we aren't. There's no middle way. There's no halfway. And so because of that, before that same world that thinks anything goes, other than a dogmatic view of authority and truth, your full-out choice for his mission brings division on earth. That's what it does. It is of the very nature of the decision that you are called to. But why do we keep thinking that we can live at peace with this world? Why do we think that they will continue to lay out roses in a parade for those who follow after Christ? Why? Why do we think that we can be wholly committed to Christ, to that which is foreign to them and spiritually discerned, and not have conflict? It's going to happen. The reason that it doesn't happen is either they don't care or we don't care. We don't care enough to be firm in our conviction to Christ. We don't care enough to live out of the choice that we are called to. That's the rub. And part of that comes because we aren't clear about why Jesus had to come and why he saved us and what he's called us to. And part of it is because when we hear the words of the scriptures, even here at Christmas time, hearing about peace and goodwill in this world rather than thinking about peace with God through the Savior, we're a little confused. But more than just confused, we're confused about the peace that He brings, but more even a peace that, are we longing for something else? for full restoration, for full reconciliation. And because we're confused about that peace, and so we live at peace even though there is no peace with the world, because we're living this way of indecision, and because we're not actually doing that which he calls us to, it shows that we, we're apathetic, we're sluggish concerning the mission. And so Jesus brings us back here even as we started in Matthew 9. You've got to come back to my heart in saying all of this to you, of calling you to this and giving you every hope and every confidence in it. Jesus is making plain at the end of the mission call that which he brings by it. I'm giving you a calling that brings you into conflict with the world. It's plain. Even as now, we have to be committed 
to walking and following him, living in the midst of the tension of it. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. He hasn't come to bring peace to the earth. Not yet. Not in fullness. That comes in the last day. Though there will be a necessary division there too between those sheep and those goats. But instead, the peace that he brings is that which he will accomplish. And so to this moment in history that he enters into in order to accomplish that thing, he can't come and just bring olive branches or free donuts or pony rides for the kids. No, you can't do that. A house that is condemned you don't go into with some wallpaper and contact paper. No, you come with a sledge. You come with machinery. You come to knock this thing down. And there's going to be no peace. There's going to be pieces. That's what Jesus enters into. In the setting of the mission, in the execution of his mission in office, Jesus brings something else. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword that cuts. A sword that divides. That sword is His Word. That sword is Himself. It is that Word made flesh. It is the gospel of a gracious and exclusive kingdom. And that will necessarily divide. What do you mean it's not for everybody? What do you mean not everybody gets in? What do you mean all dogs don't go to heaven? What do you mean? We have a message that divides. We have a message that cuts. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That sword cuts. That sword draws a line. That sword divides and destroys strongholds. That sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is that offense. Offense, certainly, but offense. And that reality should reframe our understanding of our mission and of what peace really is. Because the peace of this day will not be the overcoming of strife. The peace will not be of the definition of the people of this world. No, peace is found in the overthrow of sin and in the receipt of salvation full and free in Jesus Christ alone. Of which the sword has to cut through us in order to have that seed take full root. That sword needs to come And cut us and convict us and change us. He brings a sword because this is a war. It's a war between kingdoms, it's a war between light and darkness. It is a war waged between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the cosmic battle that is waged from the start. 
Jesus brings a sword to a sword fight. And his truth prevails. His truth is what you are given. Equipped with the full armor of God and granted the sword of the Spirit. That you would go to that which he calls you to. He brings conflict with the intention that hostilities can and will continue, but that they will only be ended by Him and in Him. And that conflict is the one that you are called to enter and endure. Knowing that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Which means then, if we're being faithful to going out, armored up and equipped with that message, with that truth, into a lost, dark, and despising world, as one commentator writes, to follow the Prince of Peace sometimes means disunity and conflict. That's what will come. And yes, we're to be cunning and to recognize where we throw pearls and all of that. But here in this text, Jesus is cutting through some of that, some pun intended, in order to get at that heart. Do you realize the mission? Do you realize the stakes? Do you understand the import of your choice? Because it comes closer than just talking about them and us. It's more than just talking darkness and light, as though these are just team names that we talk about and have no commitment to. You see, we're safe when we use terms like us against the world or light and darkness, but, but isn't that division and that conflict closer than that? Closer than just cliches and generalities? I mean, some of that can be found even in our own families. Some of it can be found amongst those who line up and down our pews on a Sunday. It can even be those in our own families who are we, we are divided from and against in Christ. I love you, but we're not on the same team. We're not on the same side. I mean, the, the heart-wrenching bit of of looking at people in certain states at that point who had to figure out which side of of north versus south they wanted to be on in the Civil War. Brother against brother. But how much worse here? Because the choice for his mission properly understood, and, and this is why he's driving the heart commitment now, I want you to know how close it may be to you. Verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Luke writes it this way in Luke 12, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's saying this conflict that I bring will upset all that you understand about your family structure, about what's important, about where your loyalties lie. A man against his father? 
that upsets established order. What dad says goes. But if dad is given to sin, then the son needs to be given to righteousness. A daughter against her mother, arguably probably the closest of relations within a house until they get to age 17 or 18. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, there's that sense in it, right? Best friend. The beauty and the wonder of that relationship. Now different sides. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and you're like, well, maybe you live there. But in this day... This now is alone. If the daughter-in-law doesn't jive with her mother-in-law, she has no fellowship in the home at all. She's by herself. And Jesus is saying, to follow me, you will have to rebel against what society speaks to you. You will lose the closest relationships, perhaps, that you've had to this point in life. And it might be that which isolates you from the rest of your family. And you say, where does that happen? Ask someone who's been following Islam, who believes in Yahweh, who gives themselves to Jesus Christ. All is lost. But all's been gained, right? But we struggle with this. For the Jews, it would have been blasphemy, the upheaval of traditional values even among some of the Gentiles. But again, Keener comments, Jesus' mission separates disciples from the values of the society, and the society responds with persecutions. And that's what we start to see today. You're going to go to the truth that God has made you beautiful in his time, that he has made them male and female, he's created them, that they need to be monogamous in marriage that this is what human sexuality is, you're going to enter into that with truth and then you wonder why they shoot back and fire and you're persecuted for it? Follow me. Follow me. And this is more than just division or different decisions being made. No, the choosing of Christ in his mission forces us to take a side. That line will be drawn. But listen to the reality of the division. Verse 36, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. That, 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 that's the greatest betrayal, we would think. How can this be? And as I've prayed with some of you over, over children who have strayed, over children who rebel and hate the Lord and have said it to you, this is when it's real. This is when the hurt is unbearable. Pastor, don't they? We raised them and we brought them up and we, we read these things and they talked this way. And they, there will be bitter opposition. That's the reality of what Christ is calling us to. Division, even in that place where we think, I should be able to come here and have haven and safety. I am always on mission. There is always a mission field. Even in my covenant house, there is a mission field. 
And Jesus has already said it. Look back at Matthew 10, verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Like we talk endurance this morning and perseverance. And, but here it comes even that much closer. And so here's the reiteration, the reality you live in, the tension you never escape, but one in which the rest of the word Jesus has spoken to this point doesn't stop being true about. This is my calling for you. This is the confidence I give you. While I recognize the challenge, this is what I will give you to face it. And it's ultimately a reality that drives us to our knees in dependence upon God to care for us that he would work salvation in our families and that he would come again and come quickly. It's perhaps why Jesus makes reference here to the words of Micah 7. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And it's that God who hears us, who's brought a sword, and who cuts through the intentions and thoughts of the world and cuts through ours too. And so I ask you tonight, have you made a true decision for Christ? no matter what may come, no matter the struggle that you will face, no matter the relationships that will be strained, relationships that will be hurtful, that will be directed towards you as vengeful, will you follow? Will you follow when you lose relationships with your family and friends? Will you follow? Willing to lose so that you can serve his mission even when you're despised by those you love. When we're divided by others, from others, when it feels like we're alone, is a stand upon the truth enough? Is Jesus Christ enough? Is salvation enough? Is this family that you've been made a part of, that you don't share this kind of fleshly blood with, but you share the blood of Christ with, is that enough? His choice of us and our choice of him by the working of his word and spirit, yes, will bring division. But it also demands from us the fullness of adoration and that in the second place because it's still a question of the heart. Throughout this whole thing, it's about the heart. To whom does your love ultimately belong? Does Jesus matter more? Do I adore Jesus more than my wife than my children, than my grandchildren? Do I adore him more than my family? Because if I love them more, I'm no longer in conflict with the world, I'm in conflict with him. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me, hear it, 
is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we're like, come on, who does that really? Who loves their kids? Who loves their spouse more than Jesus? If you're questioning this can be true, please note that the worship and idolatry of one's own family is alive and well even in the midst of the church. That it's alive and well in places, especially when it comes out in the exclusion of the rest of the body of Christ and in apathy concerning the mission we're called to choose and follow. When our structures, when our covenant becomes more a curse than a blessing. You see, a choice is called for. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and he goes a step further, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The one who lacks this love, literally, if you want to massage out the context here, is not fit to be my disciple. Do you adore Jesus more than the people you're sitting with tonight? Do you adore Jesus more than your extended family? Do you adore Jesus more than your life? Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, the choice is a matter of counting the cost and here it, it amps up again and again and again. If I ask you to leave your family, will you come? If I ask you to lay down your life, will you come? Will you make that choice? We count the cost. Will we take up even the instrument of our own death to walk in the way of the Savior? (laughs) You can't get around the choice. This is his mission. This is the way you will walk. This is the work you give yourself to. It's an all or nothing. We carry this as one who considers ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ by way of his choice for us and more his love for us. And that has to inform the choice. It has to inform the love. Luke 9, if he said, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, 27, who does not, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Have we made that choice simply because we love him? John 12, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant must be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you adore him in the longing for that? Does he have all of your adoration, adoring Jesus more than anything this life has to offer? That's the choice he calls you to. The exclusivity cannot be avoided. For whoever finds his life will lose it, verse 39, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It is a gloriously awesome and awful paradox. That to find life in the things of this world is actually the loss of life. 
It's the choice of death now and forever. And that's the hurt, and we usually direct these kinds of comments to young people, but there are a lot of older people who are still trying to gather in the things of this world that they can't hold on to or take with them. That longing for control and power and status and things that just don't matter. It's a choice of death to give yourself to those things. Do not be deceived. If that's what your life is about, you are finding yourself in conflict with the call of Christ to repent and believe and to follow and to find your all in him. We lose our lives that we may gain the life of Christ. And that could be the loss of everything you hold dear. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of it? Of my heart's adoration even then, when all of my flesh cries out to hold on to all of that. That's the choice we're called to every moment of this existence by faith. That isn't a one-time decision. That is an every-moment decision in this war of life that we are in. And that is to rule the living of our life, though. Or that is to be given, then. That if we have given ourselves, that is life in the richest and fullest sense. That I will have lost all and given up all to have everything. Everything. That is what it is to actually live in union and communion with Christ in the wonder of the full receipt of his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's freedom. That as Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then it adds in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the illumination of our heart that he's giving tonight. That if you are going to be faithful to going out and gathering those sheep and gathering in that harvest, I'm going to ask you for everything. I might take everything in my grace to you. Am I worthy of all your praise, all your adoration, all your following, all of your effort, all of your straining, all of your striving? Am I worthy of it? And yet we're called to this choice to his mission because of his choice to love us with an everlasting love. That he's not asking you to give up something that he isn't going to give you so much more in. Consider your heart. Is this understanding of adoration seen and known in the way, yes, that you are thankful for all of those blessings that he's given you? But also an understanding that, Lord, if you've given and you call me to give up, you're going to be blessed. And so in that then he closes an understanding then of that call in this mission to reception and that in the last place because 
quite honestly, not everybody's going to receive you in the decisions you make. Not everyone's happy with all the decisions you make? No. And so certainly when it's the conflict of the world of darkness with lights and with faithfulness, there's going to be a problem. You're going to be questioned for your choice. You're going to be persecuted for your choice. But no matter what may come, you are called to follow. That in fact, at the end of this, what does Christ do? He gets up and he goes to his mission. And they follow him to the mission. But here, what Christ issues is a call to be one on that mission who not only follows, but who also receives and welcomes unto blessing and encouragement. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Luke 10, the one who hears you hears me, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You see, one who loses his life, as Keener writes, becomes representative of Jesus. And so, yes, as one comes to you with that word, do you receive him? As you go to someone with that word, do they receive you? That isn't just a personality or popularity thing. That's a Christ thing. That's a kingdom thing. Verse 41, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Here is the reward of faithful service. That's what he's laying before you. Here it is. Receive the words of the prophets. Receive the words of of the righteous person. What he's saying is, are you receiving Christ or not? That will be known in how you receive the words of the prophets and the teachers. It's going to be known in the way in which you receive those following after him. And so the reward of faithful service is the blessing of the Lord and his commendation in the end, simply of his decision and good pleasure in having you give yourself to works that he's ordained for you to walk in them. He's saying receive Christ and receive me not just in the taking up of this mission, but in receiving those who now will receive that message. And so whether or not, that isn't up to you. But he's ordained you to walk in it. Look back at Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are not waiting for a prize in this life of popularity, of likes, or anything else. My citizenship is in heaven and that's where my reward is. That's the reward of the righteous made righteous in Christ. That's the reward of the prophet who speaks the word of the Lord. And so the fulfilling of this mission then, of that kind of choice, will be known in those kinds of grand gestures. I receive the word as it is preached. I receive those who continue to walk in that in ways of hospitality, truth, and encouragement. That's going to be my life on mission with him. But it's going to be small things too. Verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so he's saying his mission is going to be great things, but don't forget the little ones. This is the most basic kindness that could be given in that day. And he's saying you're not going to lose your reward over it. That you would see every one of your actions, even in the mundane things, 
as being something done out of adoration in that mission to him. Because they're not small acts in God's estimation, but a way of glorifying him and those things which he uses us to show us love and assurance. Mark 9, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Or that joy we heard in Hebrews 6 last week, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end. But with a point, and it's the same point of Christ here, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit the promises. And so Jesus comes to us, even as he has come to his disciples, through all of this manifesto, as it were, to say to us very plainly, consider the choice you've been called to make in him. To consider your heart in it. Are there things you're holding on to more than him? Is there anything or anyone you've been divided from worth more than your love and commitment to Jesus? Consider what you adore. Are there any idols in your heart, be them family or the stuff of this world, getting in the way of your choice to adore him, to give him thanks in all circumstances, for this is his will for you in Christ Jesus? Does your life and what you receive in terms of his word, his servants of that word, in the way you receive and care for each other in hospitality, does it make plain that your commitment, that your choice is for Christ alone and for his mission alone? And all of us have to say, I fall short of that. I fall short of that. And yet he calls us to it anyway because of who he is and what he's accomplished and what he will work and is working among us. And so it's a call, church, for us to take up that mission for sheep and grain. Not just in words, not not just in Christian cliche or in nice things, but to take it up in reality in fervency, even in the difficulties of divisions that may come and renovation that has to happen and sorrows that are inflicted and hurts that we endure and pain that remains. To a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, giving ourselves to Him as we care for and we receive each other and as we truly participate in this mission together. For one reason, for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of this call throughout Matthew 9 and 10 to be on mission not only in Christ and with Christ and for Christ, but on mission together. And Lord, we, we know the idols of our hearts. We know what we cling to. That even when we sing the song, I surrender all, we sing it, but we hope it doesn't come to that. And certainly, Lord, we pray for grace if it does. But until then, Father, what we pray for is your work in us. 
for this work of mission to begin in the circle we draw around ourselves. That you would be at that heart work, that your word would have its conflict and weigh with us in cutting us to the core of who we are and filling that which you cut away from us with the blessings and the beauty of Christ and his love and his mercy and his grace. That we would be fully consumed with who you are and what you are and what you've promised and what you are doing. And so, Lord, work that in us. And as we go out, Father, to receive those that we are to receive, to receive that word, to receive that service, to receive those kindnesses, Father, to go out in a word of truth that will lead to our persecution, to our hardship, perhaps even to martyrdom, Father, that we would go out because we adore you and because you are worthy. You are worthy of all. All of it, every bit of who we are, every bit of what we have, which is all an inheritance from you. And so, Father, may we give and hold nothing back. May we go forth, Father, decisively as those who have decided to follow Jesus in whom there is no turning back and no turning around. And that, Father, you would meet us there. And more than that, you would walk that path with us as you have promised. That you would never leave us or forsake us according to your promise. And that you would lead us over Jordan. That you would lead us, Father, to your promised land in that day. And so, Father, inspire us, convict us, challenge us. And, Father, then let us be overwhelmed in the grace which has opened our eyes to this and opened our hearts to receive it and readied our hands and our feet and our mouths to act upon it. And so, Father, hear us. Be near to us in this mission as you have promised. And we ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.